Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Corey Horn. Starting in 597 BCE, the Babylonian Empire conquered the land of Judah and exiled many Judeans to Babylon. Less than a century later, in 539 BCE, the Persian king Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians. In 538 BCE, King Cyrus made a public declaration that allowed Jews the right to return to Judah and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Scholars have seen this as sort of a golden age of Jewish renewal as Jews attempted to reconnect to their ancestral traditions. But for scholar Mark Lucher, the story is more complicated. The people who come back from exile and who build up Jerusalem, they re-engage ancient Israelite faith and practice to a certain degree. But they're adding to it as well, because now under the Persians, they begin to systematize it in a way that they hadn't before. Mark Lutcher holds a PhD from the University of Toronto, focusing on ancient Israel and ancient Judaism. He is currently a professor of religion and Jewish studies at Temple University. In his most recent work, he's studying what's known as the Persian imperial myth and how it influenced the formation of ancient Jewish texts. What the book project is going to be is a look at not just texts that were made by early Jewish communities living under the Persian Empire, but how those texts digest the mythology of the empire. A foundation myth can be found in every empire and every nation. A foundation myth is an idea that informs your sense of identity, informs your reading of history. It's an idea that takes place sort of outside of history. Every nation has some variation on myths manifesting in different ways, you know. So the ancient Persians did as well. Their mythology actually can be found in a foundational document that was carved into a cliffside, a huge cliffside in 521 BCE. This document is called the Behistun Inscription. The inscription is really an account of how an emperor named Darius I came to power and how he talks about dispatching his enemies. He says these enemies were trying to take the kingdom for themselves, But really, he goes on in the inscription to say these enemies were manifestations of a cosmic being called the lie. Almost like a demon of sorts, this demon called the lie had corrupted the nature of the world and put unsuitable people into positions of power, or at least led unsuitable people to try and claim the empire. And it was up to Darius to work on behalf of the cosmic order to purge the empires of these dangerous pretenders. And he did so, and he claimed the throne through a lot of bloodshed, but he presents this bloodshed in the Behistun inscription as doing the will of God, the Persian god of Mazda, and pushing the lie out of the empire. So that's the imperial myth. And, and the reason why it's not just a foundational inscription, but also a myth, is that this inscription was studied on a curricular level for 200 years within the Persian Empire. It was sort of rehashed and reused and re-annexed in other inscriptions, propagandistic and, and, uh, and otherwise, that later Persian emperors would institute or put up. So it became a, a kind of mantra of identity, not just for the emperors themselves, but for people who wanted good standing within the empire. It's not unlike the kind of myths that people use today to identify themselves. To identify as American, you might say life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. There's something mythical about that. And the Behistun inscription 
was the myth of the Persian Empire and the antiquity that served a similar purpose, one that was more favorable to the Jewish people. The Babylonians were brutal and significantly disrupted and destroyed Jewish life. They murdered children and elderly people and lots of other people too. They were very, very brutal. And even though the Babylonians didn't exile everybody from their homeland, most people within the homeland were internally displaced. So even if you weren't exiled, you were suddenly no longer in your ancestral territory and you were not in your ancestral or clan-based land or estate. You were somewhere else, someplace that was within the boundaries of your homeland, but wasn't your land. During this time, some people did stay in the land. Of course, there were people who were exiled into Babylonian foreign territory proper, where they didn't speak the language. They didn't know the customs. They didn't know the terrain. In some places, it went as far as not even knowing the grains that they could eat. When the Persians ended the Babylonian exile and declared amnesty for those who had been taken captive to go back to their homelands, not just the Jews, but other ancient people as well, ancient Jewish sources remember this is a great moment in history where Jews could finally go back to their land, and maybe this would bring about a return of a descendant of David. The idea that we would enter into a messianic era and everything would be great is the way that literature remembers, an idyllic way that was understood by generations of scholars as reflecting a historical reality. The reality is that things were, in fact, better for the Jews living under the Persians than they were for the Jews living under the Babylonians. But that doesn't mean it was a golden age. Part of the problem is that for a long time, scholars who work in this area didn't think we really had any sources that could tell us more about this period. Certain texts were dated to certain periods other than the Persian period. Therefore, there was a dearth of evidence from the Persian period that could give us deeper insight into what was actually happening on the ground. Well, we've made some strides and we now see texts in the formation and and transmission of texts in a different way that tell us a lot more about the world of their authors or the people who are transmitting them and the audiences. And it gives us more to chew on, really, that enables us to think about the Persian period, not as just a golden age, but a very complicated and even turbulent golden age. So while, yes, this return created opportunities for Jews to have greater stability and they were no longer nearly as oppressed as they were under the Babylonians, they were still subject to an empire that did not allow its subjects to enjoy true autonomy. When there is an imperial myth weighing in on native mythologies and aspirations, they inevitably will result in complication given enough time. Jews living under Persian imperialism had a role in purging this ideology of the lie. This mythological figure is something within their midst. What happens is that a much older ancient Israelite tradition from before the Babylonian exile is reconnected to the community that returns to the land, and the temple is rebuilt, and rituals in the temple are reenacted. But now these rituals and the texts that support them may reflect a slightly different ideology. It's not just native ideology anymore. It's it's native ideology that is refracting Persian imperial mythology. So if you are conducting a sacrifice in the Jerusalem temple, hundreds of years earlier, you might have just been sacrificing to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But now your sacrifice to Yahweh, the God of Israel is part of a larger imperial enterprise to keep the lie out of the land. So suddenly the goal is not just to worship your ancestral deity, 
or your national deity, although I use the word nation very loosely there. The goal is also to maintain imperial order and to play your part as a good citizen of the empire. This means that now these people who have tradition typically limited to a location or region have an abundance of additional traditions rolled into the traditions that already needed attention. So in ancient Israel, for example, if you were a northern Israelite, you were different than somebody in the southern kingdom of Judah. You spoke the same kind of language and you worshiped the same God, but you did these in different ways and you had different traditions that you focused on. For example, the mythological and ritual traditions about King David were much more prominent in Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah throughout most of the monarchy period than the traditions of Moses were. The traditions of Moses were more prominent in the northern kingdom after the Babylonian exile. Really, by the time of the Babylonian exile, that had started to change. But after the exile was over and Jews go back under Persia, those two distinct traditions are rolled into an ancient Judaism that has to account for both of them. So a very good example of one of the major changes is that it's really only during this time that we finally see what we call a Torah or a Pentateuch. The five books of Moses are the first five books of the Bible. The sources that we find in the Torah probably existed independently down to the Persian period. They were woven together once as part of a single literary enterprise that brought together different traditions in a way that mirrored different populations now coming together under the auspices of Persia. In a way, the text of the Torah or the Pentateuch provides a textual roadmap or blueprint for how the community reading this text should see itself. You have people with Northern heritage and people with Southern Judahite heritage. And then you have people of a priestly background and people with a Levite background. Now, all varieties are suddenly all working together, living together and functioning together under the priesthood in Jerusalem and the Persian Empire overall. But even with that, there are still remarkable variations in communities that don't abide by this at all. There's much more diversity in Persian period Judaism at this time than we had previously thought. And it's this diversity that is really at the core of the research project that I'm doing. Because if you have a group of people in Jerusalem who are reading a Torah and writing literature that presupposes the Torah is, you know, the word of God, and it's also aligned with Persian imperial ideology, but you have people in Egypt, Jews living in Egypt, who don't seem to know this Torah at all, and yet they align with Persian imperial ideology as they worship their God as well. How are these two communities understanding that imperial ideology, that imperial mythology, with these vastly different religious traditions as a kind of filter. And that's something that I don't think has been adequately explored. There are two books that establish and lend to the legitimacy and authority of the Persian imperial myth. These books are called Ezra and Nehemiah, or Nehemiah. When we read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, they really function together as one book. What we're looking at is believed to be imperial text. Ezra appointed by the Persian emperor, was a Jewish religious leader who returned from the exile in Babylon. According to Jewish tradition, Ezra reformed the community on the basis of the Torah. Scholars are seriously divided on whether that actually happened or if the book of Ezra and Nehemiah just wants it to look like that happened. We do know that Nehemiah is appointed by the Persian emperor to oversee Jewish affairs in a different number of ways. Ezra chapter 7 tells us that what we're about to read is a copy of a letter that the, the emperor Artaxerxes wrote to Ezra to commission him to oversee Jewish affairs. It probably points to some memory of an actual commissioning report 
that made Ezra an authority over Jewish affairs by virtue of his authority as a uh, Persian imperial officer. And in that letter, the word Torah, which pertains to Jewish law and, and you know, Jewish texts and Jewish teachings, seems to be um, combined or paralleled with the word data, which is the Persian word for imperial instruction or imperial fiat. And so there's this implication that the real Torah, the real teachings of Israel's God, are in fact not just consistent with Persian imperial documents and Persian imperial fiat, but are expressions of Persian imperial doctrines and Persian imperial fiat. So they're they're really rolled into one. It seems like the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is cobbled together or compiled toward the very end of the Persian Empire, maybe as a desperate bid to hold the imperial values at a time when imperial values may have been challenged. These texts definitely change over time, and the perception of their content certainly changed with that time as well. When we look at Ezra and Nehemiah as texts, it's very clear that they are drawing from older traditions and trying to reformulate them. So there are passages in the book of Ezra in particular that draw from the book of Deuteronomy, which is a much older text. I think Deuteronomy was written sometime in the 7th century BCE, so it's about 200 years older, close to 200 years older. And these traditions were well known to the authors and audiences of Ezra and Nehemiah, but the book of Ezra takes these traditions and reformulates them in a way that we do not find in the book of Deuteronomy. So there's an interpretation going on in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah of older texts. These texts are changing. They're being cited and quoted, alluded to in later traditions that present themselves as safeguards of older traditions. It's never just that simple. In the very early 20th century, scholars found Aramaic documents from a Jewish community at a place called Elephantine, or Elephantini. Elephantini is in Egypt. These documents tell us a lot about what this community believed and how they understood themselves. They worshipped the God of Israel, and they had their own temple there. So it's not just that there was a temple in Jerusalem. They had their own. They had religious practices and ceremonies and festivals that sound very familiar. But one thing that they do not have in any of these documents are references to the Torah. They, they don't seem to know the book of Deuteronomy. They make no references to the book of Exodus or Genesis. I mean, they don't really talk about the prophets. None of these people who lived at Elephantini, who counted themselves Jews, and, and who abided by Persian imperial mythology, none of them seem to know anything about the literature that for the last 2,000 or so years, Jews have assumed to be sort of universally Jewish, which tells us that Judaism in antiquity, and certainly in the Persian period, is really quite varied. And there is no fixed canon of Jewish text or tradition. There are authoritative and important traditions that many communities commonly recognize as holy, but they weren't fixed. They were constantly changing, and just because they were holy doesn't mean that everybody necessarily adopted them or deferred to them. So how is it then that the Jews at Elephantini saw themselves as authentically Jewish and also saw themselves as good subjects of the Persian Empire? Well, the documents that we do have abide by Persian conventions of letter writing, and this is much more significant than most people tend to think. In ancient Persia, the idea was that the more formal your letter was, the more it supported the myth, the more it supported the Behistun inscription. And this idea that you're pushing aside the dangerous and corrosive influences of that cosmic 
lie, that demon that wants to destroy the empire. So if you were to write a letter to me and you were to use the conventions of uh, Persian diplomatic letter writing, simply by doing that, you're upholding Persian imperial mythology. You're saying that the empire and the forms of the empire and the speech of the empire and the, the ways that people corresponded within the empire that is being upheld. That is not being compromised by time or history or space. When we read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we are reading a book that is steeped in Persian imperial mythology and a way of saying that this myth is a way of fulfilling the will of God, Israel's God that put Persia in control. So there's a what we call a theocracy, a hierocracy there. The food chain would go God, Persia, Jewish priesthood, rest of the Jewish people. That's the, the chain of command that we find in Ezra Nehemiah. So it puts the Persian empire and Persian imperial mythology right up at the top, just underneath God himself or itself. When we read the book of Chronicles, which was written toward the very end of the Persian period as well, but by a different scribal group, we get a very different perspective. The scribal group recognizes Persian imperial mythology, but doesn't like it. They don't think it's viable. They seem to be challenging it. They seem to be calling attention to it and asking whether or not we should link it so strongly to the empire that promoted it, or whether it speaks to ideas that are not bound to a particular empire, but that are actually timeless and far more important. In addition to Chronicles, we have something called the Book of the Twelve. The Book of the Twelve is it's a combination of individual prophetic books, most of which were probably written before the Persian period, but they were all short. They were like short little scrolls. And so what scholars think is that the Book of the Twelve represents the writing of those short scrolls onto one long scroll. So suddenly, instead of, you know, a tiny little scroll containing the three chapters of the Book of Habakkuk, or, you know, a small scroll containing the nine chapters of the book of Amos. You have one long scroll containing Amos and Hosea and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And what you get from this is a scroll that's roughly the same size at the end that would have contained the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah. It was a way of bringing all of these individual older prophetic books together onto one long scroll and probably just to preserve them, but also establish relationships between them. The idea for me is that the same group of scribes that wrote the book of Chronicles that questions on a subtle level the efficacy of Persian imperial mythology, it's the same group of scribes that redacted the book of the Twelve and formed this one long scroll as a kind of symbolic statement on what prophetic messages from antiquity meant today or meant in their own time. And in both Chronicles and the book of the Twelve, we have a real questioning of, of the viability of Persia. Here there is a recognition of the imperial myth. But there's also the sense that the myth is not like the world just resulted into Persia and all previous cultures, societies, civilizations finally found their fulfillment in the Persian Empire. The critique is that older ideas that Persia has claimed to be part of their imperial mythology were already in Jewish tradition before Persia. And the ideas are fine, but don't put all your faith in the Persian empire because empires rise and fall. And that seems to be the implication of the book of Chronicles and the book of the 12 when we read them sort of with an eye to each other. Another set of questions is brought up in the book of Enoch at the end of the Persian period. The writers here are asking a completely different set of questions about what happens when myths fail, not just empires, but myths. 
What happens if this myth from the Persian Empire about stability and order and hierarchy, what if it's not transcendent? What if it's all a terrible, terrible mistake? Do we put our faith in a mistake? And how far back does this mistake even go? If this is a mistake, conceptually, it's very ancient. And maybe it's even part of the myth itself. What does it mean to have a myth of identity that's based on a mistake or mistaken perception? Have groups established foundation myths for themselves? The myths usually appear to be true and honest and good and strong. And that's why we believe in that. What if the myth is meant for us to question it? And if it's meant for us to question it, what about its component parts and the other ways that it connects to older traditions and older mythologies from the ancient Near East? What are we to make of them? So there's a very different kind of exploration going on in the Enochian material than there is in the stuff in Chronicles and the Book of the Twelve, than there is in the Pentateuch and Ezra Nehemiah, than there is in the Elephantine documents. So we got at least four different Jewish scribal groups all making claims on Jewish identity through what they're writing. And the writing is a really important part of it because writing establishes identity and establishes a record uh, of identity as well. It, it solidifies your existence. If this was truly a golden age, we would imagine unification and sort of a kumbaya cooperation. And there really doesn't seem to be any of that among the Jews by the end of the Persian period. If anything, it's much more fragmented and much more fractious and more turbulent and more unstable than it was going in. But what does that mean for our current time period and anyone interested in Judaism and Jewish history as a whole? One thing that I can say for sure is that I see a tremendous amount of overlap between Persian imperial ideas and statecraft and rhetoric and propaganda and the responses to it. and the kinds of ways that people respond to news media and the way that information is packaged and the mythologies that they create as well. People are remade from the inside out based on what they digest, based on what information is given to them and how that information is packaged. If we can understand the mechanics of the packaging, if we understand the agenda and the methods and the sort of mythic tropes that are invoked in this packaging, we get a better sense of how we might respond to it in a responsible and tenable way. And I think that's something we can see in the ancient stuff that I'm looking at too. The Persian empire is an ancient empire. 2,400 years ago, it doesn't exactly pertain one-to-one with where we are now and the things that we encounter in the 21st century daily life. But the propaganda, power, literature, and imagery Those are things the Persians were really, really good at. And it's something that we ought to keep in mind. I would like people to take something away from the research project that I'm doing and recognize that it tells us something about how power and information and mythology form a triad that is very, very much at work in our lives today and the way that we live them. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Scott Spector. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.